What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm joined, as ever, by the boy, Nathan Cush. How are you, Nath? Yeah, I'm all right. Well, good, son. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to say, like, how are you, because it just leads on a tangent of, like, not starting there. You look like Himmler. Yeah, man, that's, that's what I'm going for. I'm, um, yeah, like, kind of offline now and just getting really into uh, looking like Third Reich. This is episode 95. We're inching ever closer towards that 100th episode mark. This is part three of our sort of mini-series on empire after Afghanistan. In the first episode in this mini-series, we were joined by Frank Ledwidge. In the second one, uh, we were joined by Michael Hart to discuss his book on empire. And in this episode, now we're delighted to say we're going to be rejoined by our friend Frank Ledwidge because after we finish recording the last one, um, there was so much interesting stuff that we were talking to Frank about uh, once we sort of finished formally recording that we thought, well, we've got we enough can, here. We can, scrape, we can scrape this together. And <laughs> no, we've got enough. Ideally, have Frank on every week. You know, such an interesting guy. And like, um, obviously, it's a topic that I'm I'm really only interested in sort of international relations and like military military sort of stuff. Everything else is sort of okay. Uh, but this is like the dream topic. I could talk to Frank about this like for, forever. So well, maybe we'll ask. Maybe Frank can just take over this podcast. Well, the plan uh, is, I think, after episode number hundred, we're just gonna have Frank just like fireside chats with Frank. Like that'll be a lot better. Frank. Um, yeah. So Frank. I mean, if you hadn't listened to the last uh, episode, Frank has a lot of hats. He was a former military intelligence officer, retired with a the rank of colonel. He served in the Balkans in Iraq. He served in Afghanistan as a civilian worker. He is a lecturer. He is a lawyer. He teaches in Portsmouth University on sort of military ethics, military law, uh, and he writes regularly on all things defence for the Guardian. So this episode was sort of really makes you seem like shit, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, but yeah, it does. So, yeah, so this episode, sorry, was inspired by you know Frank's article in the Guardian about uh, recent war crime inquiries uh, in the war in Afghanistan which is something uh, an angle that we don't think has particularly been explored you know to sort of talk about the investigations into these war crimes and what they tell us about you know our society uh, so I guess that's it Nathan isn't it there's no, nothing more to say so without further ado we're gonna go live to Frank and hope you enjoy the episode bye guys enjoy welcome back Frank thanks so much for coming back on pleasure to see you again Dan yeah it's uh no it's really, <laughs> really, really great to have you <laughs> really great to see you again and have you on again like uh, you know, the last episode you know was fantastic and, and um has done really well we were debating on whether we call this like the war crime episode or war crime special or whatever to give it like a nice uh cheery ring but that you know that is the, the crux of it of this episode is going to be about you know war crimes that have happened in recent wars in the middle east you wrote an article last year in the guardian about an Australian review into war crimes committed by the Australian SAS called the, the Brereton review. If people haven't seen it, I, I don't know when the footage came out, but the footage emerged of the Australian SAS in Afghanistan murdering uh, an unarmed teenager. I wish I hadn't seen it. It's one of those. It's just it's really a horrific thing to, to witness, you know, how casual they are about it. And it, it had been alleged, I think, before that video actually came to light that there were serious problems with the Australian SAS that there was like a real rot in there that they were routinely killing unarmed prisoners and why don't you just tell us a bit about you know allegedly what happened in Afghanistan but I guess mainly Brereton review and and what it recommended and what the implications of that are right so the Brereton report came out of some very credible obviously very credible whistleblowers very brave people connected to or in one case I think actually a member of the Australian Special Air Service Regiment which as you said yourself is is very close to in terms of ethos and foundation actually to to ours and the allegations were drawn partly out of whistleblowing partly out of some of those videos you mentioned there's there, there are a couple but but the one you mentioned which is really unpleasant uh, well for murder isn't it uh, yeah. so it's not going to be pleasant but it, as you said the, the one you mentioned uh, it's particularly egregious, far more so, I think, than the Blackman case, which looks a bit similar. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah, I mean, they, we, we might get on to Blackman, we might not. But concerning the, uh, it was the British soldier who shot a prisoner on film uh, in 2011. But uh, the allegations eventually boiled down to that patrols were going out and routinely 
killing males of military age, which is to say anyone over the age of apparently over the age of 16. There were also assertions that the culture, the, the extreme macho lad culture that prevailed there gave rise to an obsession with such things. And you find this in the American Special Forces, and I'm sure with the Brits as well, actually, maybe less so there just for cultural reasons. Obsession with things like 300, you know, that yeah, yeah. film where you had in the Australian soldiers kicking people down the down off a cliff or beating them to death or stabbing them, that sort of thing. So the Brereton Report was was a review into this and amounted to something like the halfway between a Savile reporting to the Bloody Sunday killings and, and a police investigation in that people were offered some degree of not so much immunity, but they were told to speak frankly. They were told that if they'd spoke frankly, uh, they would they could expect very favourable treatment. I think I can't remember exactly now the terms. Anyhow, the report came out and it demonstrated or, or stated that it could prove that 39 Afghan civilians had been killed by this unit, which is number one squadron, I think, of the Australian SAS. There being two like, two squadrons in in, in the organisation. Now that was a minimum figure. Those those were individual cases that could be demonstrated with very probative evidence. In the report, however, you also see reference, even when you can get past the blackings out and the redactions, which are very, very uh, evident, for, for dozens of other killings. So, for example, they had a practice of shooting what were called squirters. And a squirter is <laughs> not funny. It's, uh, uh, it's what, uh, what people would quite naturally do when they saw helicopters coming in, which was run away. So they would be they would be killed. And there were, as far as I could read, many, many cases of that. But clearly you couldn't apply names or incidents to that. It was just a practice they did. Yeah. And you'll see that kind of thing going on in Vietnam as well in free fire zones. Yeah. But what you had was a was a culture or a unit with a culture that was completely out of control. The officers had lost if they ever had any control over the over the unit was governed by a set of NCOs, one of whom was awarded one of the alleged leaders of these murders and perpetrators thereof was uh, alleged murders, I should say, still under trial now, is a winner of the Victoria Cross, oh, well. which made this very, very, very controversial, continuously very controversial in Australia itself. The result was <clears throat> there'll be several uh, be several prosecutions. It'll be very interesting to see the result of the uh, the indictment against the SAS Victoria Cross winner. Uh, if he is convicted, and who knows whether he's guilty or not, we'll soon find out, I think, over the next few months. I think that'll be a massive thing in Australia, even more so than the disbandment of the squadron concerned, which uh, came out of it. So they've looked at a cultural review. I think they, uh, there'll, there'll be some logistical moves and what have you. But that's probably the top and bottom of it. A good friend of mine was the uh, was the ethical uh, advisor to that court uh, in his report, David Wetton, professor at King's College. Uh, his his report is really good read, actually. If anybody's interested in ethics in the military, then limits about, I think it will come about 20 pages. It's a really good read, very interesting about the culture and ethics of elite, elite units. For people who haven't listened to the last uh, episode with Frank, I mean, Frank got a unique perspective of being a, a former military officer and a lawyer. You know, as we said, a bit of a Renaissance man. You seem to have been very impressed by the Brereton Review. And I was struck by something you sort of said in another Guardian article. And I think you also implied it strongly in this Guardian article was that there would never be something like this in the UK. You'd never have a review this Frank in, in the UK. And what was interesting about the, the Guardian article about the Brereton Review and the Australian allegations was that it brought to my attention long-standing allegations against the British SAS, which I just hadn't heard about. Obviously, I'd heard about the Marine A case, but I hadn't heard about these allegations from 2011. I hadn't heard about the subsequent investigation called Operation Northmore, which was this long-term investigation 2014 onwards into similar allegations that occurred allegedly perpetrated by the British SAS in Afghanistan. So I was wondering um, if you could just talk about what happened with Operation Northwood? Northmore, yeah. Well, oh, Northmore, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. There were two major inquiries into British war crimes, one in Afghanistan, which you correctly say is Operation Northmore, and the other one 
was the Iraq Historic Allegations Tribunal, which was shut down after the affair with a, a solicitor called Phil Shiner, who uh, a lot of the professional military MPs were exercised about because it was alleged and, and, and then some extent proven that he had behaved uh, unethically in Iraq. Uh, and the Iraq investigation was therefore shut down. What is less well reported, by the way, is that dozens of cases against the British Army, civil cases, not criminal ones, civil yeah. cases against the British Army have been settled in court now and continue to be settled. So my own view is that many of the allegations, if you can caveat the fact that the burden of proof is different, many of the allegations against British troops uh, carried some water or they would not have been settled. There's, that you could argue that either way, but let's say that if you have 200 settlements, I don't know how many there were, it's a fair bet that several of them could have ended up with criminal criminal action. Anyway, that's Iraq. The other the other side of it is Northmore, which was a, an equivalent applied to Afghanistan, the core of which were investigations into interrogations that dealt uh, unlawfully uh, against humanitarian law, which is the law of war. To the point, there were cases that were being brought or allegations against brought against. No cases were brought. Allegations. Uh, put forward against these SAS regiments and uh, possibly other special forces units. Now, these were quite extensive. As far as I'm aware, there were no films, or at least the the, uh, investigators so far found films, and there have been no whistleblowers. So nobody's been brave enough uh, within those uh, doughty troops uh, to back up their supposed professionalism. If these things took place, there's very strong evidence they did. There'd been nobody brave enough to come forward and uh, show moral courage in, in, uh, in whistleblowing. So the Brits, unlike the Australians so far, I think it may happen. And there, there were many, many allegations. If your listeners want to look further, they could look at t- the Times. The Sunday Times did a, a, a big inquiry into two or three killings. And Panorama, a, a, an investigation alongside them. And what you had was an, an, a pattern of behaviour whereby, as part of an operation called the Joint Priorities Effects List, which is a euphemism for a death list. Which is uh, essentially, we should know, you know, this is what special forces were essentially engaged in in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they, they're not in, involved in conventional combat operations for a lot of the time. They're, they're going around essentially taking names of, you know, insurgents and night raids into their villages and compounds and trying to capture or kill these people, basically. That's right, yeah. And there's a list of uh, several thousand people uh, nationally, I mean, by that I mean across Afghanistan, and I think actually the list goes wider. It's an American-centred list. And uh, and the idea is that you go down this list and and there are three or four tiers to it. You're looking for tier one, who would be leaders, very senior leaders. Tier two would be local or provincial leaders. Tier three would be ordinary Taliban soldiers. Or insurgents, and you go down that list and kill or capture. Now the figures would tend to show that there was stress, rather greater stress on killing than capturing, even in legitimate cases. The problem was that with every kill, by the way, I'm told by at least one person who was heavily involved in this, you'd have uh, so you'd register the kill or the capture of an individual, but you know also what you wouldn't register are the so-called and I hate this term, but that's I was going to use the term collateral damage, but the other people killed in the, in the house. In the house, yeah. So it's a pattern of behaviour whereby what would happen, and this happened on one to seven or eight times according to emails which uh, were, I think, leaked to Panorama. Seven or eight times in one tour, this happened. So these guys would show up at somebody's house, they'd arrest everybody inside, all the males, and then one male would go back inside and uh, he'd, he'd, he'd reach for a gun, which would be hidden behind a curtain, and uh, he'd, he'd be killed, or people outside would. Uh, try to run away and try to escape, uh, of course, going for someone's weapon or whatever other pretext they could come up with. But this would happen time and time and time again. And in the, these emails, what you see is decent special forces soldiers, um, in this case, senior NCOs and officers, who would uh, demonstrate through through the way they express themselves, disgust at this kind of behaviour, saying that there's, there's, leadership has failed. And surely nobody believes this really happens. Afghan males have a habit of going back into a house to accompany a search and reaching for a weapon. One of the other collateral factors, which is quite interesting, as far as I understand, is that and the Australians did the same thing, 
is that for all these killings, there would be forensic evidence, right? So you document all of the killings. Once you see people were killed, uh, they were uh, documented uh, much as you would a uh, far more slapdash manner, but much as you would a similar, say, a police shooting or something like that. And oddly enough, these guys seem to have got hold of the same weapon. So they'd we'll pass it around. Like. They'd be passing this weapon around. And obviously, they'd be cap- taking it out of SAS custody somehow. And but with, I mean, they were bringing them. Those were called throwdowns. The Australians call them throwdowns. And I think we call them that as well. I don't know that for sure, but certainly Australians did. So the throwdown is a weapon you bring with you. Uh, you drop it down by a dead body and say, look, you pick, pick this up. You take the number of the weapon, put it up in the report. But the numbers of the weapons are often the same. So there's a, <laughs> a, <laughs> a bit of an oversight then. Yeah, not, you know, it's very good at climbing up and they down. They had a rocket launcher. <laughs> yes, we try something different today. So anyhow, so so these cases um, were and are alleged, and some of them are going through forms of litigation now, by the way, and we'll see what happens with that um, as we speak. Uh, but can, can linking it with the Brent inquiry, there is evidence that and this evidence comes from an Australian uh, academic who really kicked all this off. I mentioned whistleblowers, but the real hero of this is somebody called Amanda Crumford. She's an anthropologist, and she was given clearance to interview lots and lots of soldiers for an anthropological study, a cultural study of the SAS in 2016. And what she found was people were t- telling her, look, these killings happen. What do I do? I want to, want to spill the beans on this and, and tell somebody. And, and so she went to command and command then, in fairness to the Australian SAS, said, we need to sort this out. We've clearly got a big problem. And there, it's senior command of the Special Forces that instigated this, uh, and the Australian Army instigated this on her, essentially on her recommendation. We haven't had that happen for us yet. But one of the things that one of the Australian soldiers told Amanda Cronfords apparently is, we learned all we know from the Americans and the British, and if you think we were bad, they were far worse. There's plenty of evidence, by the way, the Americans were far worse, and there's also evidence, of course, the Brits were too. Now, I've spoken to people involved in these, these raids who are very, very uneasy about what happened. I've spoken to people who were young officers attached to, I mean, fairly junior officers attached to, these units uh, in ancillary roles or support roles who were aware of what happened, very uneasy about about the number of kills as as vis-a-vis the number of captures. To go what you said about uh, you know the fact the, Amer- the Americans, Frank, obviously within the US Special Forces, there's like a, almost like a hilarious macho culture exemplified by Eddie Gallagher, you know, exactly, punish, yeah. punish, yeah. punish Apaches, obsessed with knives and, and so on. Have um, you read that book Alpha, Dan? No, book? no. If people aren't aware, like Eddie Gallagher was the, the, the Navy SEAL who was convicted of killing an, an unarmed prisoner in Battle for Mosul in Iraq. He who was then, I, th- I don't know if he was jailed, but he was p- then pardoned by Trump and became like a cause celeb for the, you know, the, the obviously the far right and, you know, the militarist uh, lunatics in America. And I guess, you know, in comparison to that, you know, the British SAS, I mean, because the British Army define themselves against the Americans, don't they? Like, that's essentially what they've always done is sort of define themselves. They're America's little helpers now, yeah. Yeah, but but in terms of like, you know, it's like we're different. If you read like military biographies, it's like we're different from the the Yanks who are too over the top and we're like, well, like reserved and so on. Um, But if you look back to like the history of Northern Ireland, you know, there were loads of allegations of, you know, the SAS executing uh, wounded IRA members on the you know on the floor in the local ambush and things like that. So I mean, obviously there's British except British exceptionalism you know within all this. It's not something that is particularly new. It's just something that isn't just isn't talked about in the UK at all, is it? No, that's right. Um, the, the SAS or spec well it was only the SAS then. Now we've got the SBS and one or two other units that set themselves up. SCS. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> SCS. Uh, yeah. uh, SRR is the other one, the Special Reconnaissance <laughs> Regiment, but. They tend to be a bit more sneaky, sneaky beaky. I'm not sure they get in much combat, but uh, if they get in combat, they've done something wrong. Is that the reconnaissance people, the, the um, surveillance types? But anyway, right. So, well, look, in Northern Ireland, the SAS killed uh, in targeted killings about 48 people over a period of 15 or, or 18 years. And it was found that, that, that those killings actually found by some pretty credible studies. I know a guy who pretty much interviewed most of the survivors involved in almost all of these cases, uh, because there were survivors of some of them, as an Irish army officer. And uh, he concluded, uh, with no love for the IRA, by the way, the Irish army most certainly don't have any love for the IRA. This guy certainly didn't. But, um, you know, he he was fairly, he's very even-handed, and he reported that the SAS targeted killing programme was actively counterproductive to the campaign as a whole, because increased recruiting, and of course it 
it called out people who might, you know, in due course become leaders and negotiate with you. But I mean, that's a secondary effect. But certainly, it had a positive effect on IRA recruiting and a negative effect on the prosecution of the insurgency. So what you got is terror killings, but you and I might call that death squads. That's basically what the joint priority effects list was. It was targeted killings, death squads. Now, what strategically in Afghanistan, if we're just, just uh, this is relevant, but what you have in Afghanistan, you've got two messages that collide with each other. One is we're doing a counterinsurgency. We're trying to protect the people against insurgents, mm. trying to establish security and a sense of security. And uh, we're going to do that through trying to understand the culture, trying to understand the dynamics of the conflict and using minimum force. And in some places, whisper who dares, it looks like that might have worked, particularly with excellent leadership. And that did work in some places, apparently. But then against that, what you have is so you might have a unit show up after three months of trying that. You might take a few casualties. They, they live what they preach. And I'm thinking of one or two Royal Marine unit, for example, led by someone I know actually did that. And the results were extremely positive. But then what might happen is then you have without, of course, you wouldn't know what was going to happen. You have one of these death squads show up and kill a few people who may or may not be involved in the insurgency. But what they'll do is they'll break into someone's house at night. They'll kill everyone in the house, including people who weren't involved in the insurgency or perhaps actively involved in the police or, or in, the, in the local security forces. We'll would then report it up, up the, their chain of command, which would get them to the president. And this has happened on many occasions to the point where uh, the president would then, the president of Afghanistan would say, well, we can't have this. People smashing people their way into Afghans' homes and de, de, you know, de, uh, uh, defiling, defiling their sort of home as their castle, which is a very strong feeling there in Afghanistan. But the point is, so yeah, have this death squad strategy, which is supposed to be decapitation, running directly against the counterinsurgency strategy. And of course, if you've got if you've got strategies to run against each other, they're going to fail. And of course, they have. And one of the beautiful arguments of some of the some of them, the sort of rather more precious advocates for death squads is that well, you know, we've got to you know, we're, uh, it's the old Jack Nicholson argument, you know, a few good men and the tough men doing tough things. You know, that's the only way to win wars. Well, that'd be, I suppose that would be tenable if we had actually won this war or if that had any, any, or, or if that particular operational approach, because it's not a strategy, but it's actually a tactic. Uh, there was any evidence that it succeeded in, in reducing or abating insurgency. What it did was it rendered the special forces on all sides the single most unpopular force in the country. And there's, there's evidence for that, survey evidence in amongst Afghanistan, Af- Afghans. Now, when you're more impo- unpopular amongst Helmandis or Kandaharis than the Afghan police, 70% of whom were zapped up on heroin much of the time, you've got a real PR problem. And in, the, in those lazy words, you've got a hearts and minds problem. And my point is that this death squad tactic was actively counterproductive, even if you can, can see that it may have had some temporary tactical effect, which it didn't. It completely undercut the, the, the campaign in, in its entirety. And that's before you even get to the military ethics of it. Even from an instrumental perspective, it failed. I just wanted to go back to, obviously, you know, you are a lawyer and you, you do mention in your book, and obviously, if you ever read military accounts of, you know, war, you know, it obviously it's a horrific, terrifying thing. And, and the defence, which is always used by you know, it was used by the Australian SAS. It was used by Marine A's eventual sort of when they overturned his conviction was, you know, you are not there. You don't know the pressure that people are under, which, you know, for people like us who haven't been to war, you know, saying it's entirely reasonable. But it's, you know, you, you say in losing small wars, no one can possibly appreciate the pressure that you know your average private soldier is under, make a split second decision about who is who's a friend, who's a foe. But then you make the point that almost all these killings, particularly by the Australian SAS, occurred outside combat it was after combat was finished I remember reading one anecdote and it was like they had x amount of prisoners lined up you know blindfolded about to board a chinook chinook pilot says we can't take on 20 prisoners because they're too heavy and the australian sort of turns around they go outside and then bum 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 and then like okay we've got 10 now you know is that all right so they were essentially murders you know extrajudicial killings these ones we're talking about aren't ones that occurred in the heat of battle no they did they didn't occur in the heat of battle and uh I think if they had, then I'd be amongst those people who would say, well, I'm not going to judge somebody. I wasn't there. And it is extremely high pressure combat and mistakes happen and, and they do. Heat of the moment, misjudgments can happen. And that's just that's just the way of, way of war. And, and uh, 
you know, I think I, I've met people who've, who, who would, in a quiet moment, can see that these things took place. One Marine friend of mine shot two civilians in, in a shootout by pretty much by mistake because he'd been directed in the wrong direction. So high pressure. And he thinks about that, he says, every day. But there we are. But this is not heat of, heat of the moment. As you say, this is deliberate murder. And uh, even in the heat of combat, it's worth mentioning the fact that actually the Brits aren't good at this, you know, compared with other, uh, other combatant countries, including the US, I think. British soldiers are quite good. You know, 98% of British soldiers do not commit war crimes. So there's that. And one of the reasons for that is that many or most British soldiers have a sense of professionalism. You know, they treat their profession as you do, or as, as, as my profession, my original profession is a barrister. Now I'm an academic. You have a professional approach. There's certain things you don't do just as, a, as, a, as part of your virtue ethics. And that's the same for soldiers. You know, it's just not what we do. We don't kill prisoners because we don't have enough room on the helicopter. You know, we just don't do that. We'll, we'll come up with some other solution. And that, you know, plenty of dilemmas like that in the past. But we also have to remember that there is uh, another aspect, and that's the, 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 the macho, laddish, laddish side. There's the occasion you get, even now, British senior military officials say they encourage, and that, that feeds into some of the sexism and some of the anti-women behaviour that's taken place in, in the military. Uh, which is, of course, unprofessional. So, so there you have it. Most British soldiers are professional, including most special forces soldiers. It's fair to say it's a minority that do it. But um, it, it's it, a few bad apples are one thing. But if the barrel is rotten, then that's that's going to continue to 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 happen. People will say that oh, they're great soldiers, but you look at the German army. It's entirely possible to be you know, in World War Two. Not now, but it's entirely possible to be an amazingly brave soldier. And also someone who commits war crimes, you know, they're, they're not like mutually exclusive. But I think that sort of gets lost. You mentioned, you know, there's part of like the laddish culture. Is it perhaps something like the lack of accountability on the front, as well as, you know, the kind of pressure to behave like, quote unquote, like, you know, in a masculine way? Yeah, of course. In particular, that's the case in infantry units. But, but I have to, you know, just re- stress again that 98 percent of so British soldiers do not commit war crimes because they've got a very strong sense of professionalism and who they are, which leaves a, a very small minority that do, and perhaps a, a slightly larger but still small minority who will condone that and protect them. And, you know, you see that in absolutely front and centre in cases like Baha Musa, where uh, some, some hotel, hotel staff were, were severely beaten and one was murdered by a, by a British infantry unit. Very few guys, but... What was the fallout from the Baha Musa thing? Just... There was a big, long trial during which seven were seven people were accused of complicity in murder, effectively, or serious assault charges. It resulted yeah. in one guy, as the judge put it, the green wall of silence closing around them. There's insufficient evidence to convict anyone for, for uh, anything against any of them, actually. There was a guy called uh, Payne who was convicted, I think, of, of, uh, of an assault, uh, and the rest got away with it. Baha Musa was killed or followed an inquiry, and... Uh, the inquiry went into interrogation conditions and things like that. But uh, there were seven, six, I think, hoteliers were captured. One was killed and the others were beaten to within inches of their lives. There's also complicity on the part of uh, a doctor and uh, some, some officers as well, it is alleged. Do, do you think that was just like, you know, as like a, almost a microcosm for perhaps, you know, society was just like sociopaths in a sense who just kind of not get through the net, but like... It's just the opportunities there and they take it or like just such a dehumanization yeah, yeah, of the yeah, enemy that yeah, it's just like yeah. you don't consider it. Yeah, that, well, that's that, you know, you, you, there's always that sense of the enemy being uh, inhuman and that, that to some extent is encouraged, particularly when you get commanders. And this is the point here on to make that oh, when the oversight fails. So when you get commanders saying gloves off here, lads, you know, yeah, yeah. You get stuck in. But um, that brings us to accountability. And, I, you know, I've got to be honest with you, and I don't say this often, but in cases like Blackman, which was the Marine who shot a, a Taliban dead who was actually dying on, on the floor and yeah. filmed himself doing what he was filmed doing it with the words shuffle off this mortal coil, you cunt. There's yeah. nothing you want to done to us, which pretty much sums up the attitude, I think, which is often, you know, you'll often hear that they would do it to us. Well, OK, fine. Well, if you feel that Taliban ethics are yours, then probably shouldn't be the British Army or the Royal Marines. But these things will happen 
in an anarchic, essentially anarchic environment, full of the friction and friction of, of, of the worst kind of conflict. Fog of war. That you get fog of war, the friction of fog of war you get. They're going to happen. But they're less likely to happen if there is professional oversight. And that oversight has to come from a chain of command, which is itself accountable. And in, not, in all of the war crimes cases, be it the famous ones that I know of, including many of the German ones and including many of the British ones uh, from Malaya, American cases in Milai, where 600 yeah. Vietnamese were killed in one day. You get uh, cases we mentioned. You also get several other key American cases, Malaya, um, Haditha in Iraq, Kill Squad in Afghanistan. Benz. You've also got key, the key one, and a perfect example of all this is the Gallagher case. Where you, which was yeah. that seal you mentioned, who murdered quite a lot of people, actually. It wasn't just the one they got caught for. Very interesting story, which I haven't got time to go into. But in <laughs> all those cases, you have deficient leaders. And I'm talking about the officers here, not the NCOs. And the, the common factor is at that level of the regimental battalion commander. If he sets a poor tone, you're going to have problems because that feeds directly down into the officers and senior NCOs who then don't feel they're going to have the support necessary to run a professional swept up unit. If you get a senior leader at that level who is professional and compliant, what you tend to have is no war crimes. So with, let's take the example of the Australian SAS. They eventually got their act together uh, then and their senior general summed up the situation which I'm talking about with the following words. You are a prick if you think the uh, rules of the regular army don't apply to you and we don't need people like you in the special forces. Mm. Now that's, that's um, that sums up a good leader dealing with his men in a way which which they'll understand and setting out the principle of essential of professionalism. The rules of the regular army apply to these people. There is another cultural aspect which surrounds special forces, by the way, so I'm slightly moving to the side a little. And that is they're the blue-eyed boys, you know, they're everybody's hero, they're very many civilians. They're seen as some kind of superhuman. Of well, course, yeah. They're not, you know. These are guys who have, in the words of one of them, an American SEAL actually from one of those very elite SEAL teams, he said, I have a skill that other people don't have. I have an exceptional ability to withstand pain and an unusual amount of grit. Those qualities, he said, do not apply in any other area of life or existence. That's the only difference I have. That's the case for special air service as well. What you often find, by the way, and your listeners may be interested, you know, just if I try and register civilian experience in this, is a lot of these people, when they leave the service, they may be very capable of snipers or uh, raiders of houses or very quick reactions or be able to walk 60 miles in over many hours. But when they come out, they can be severely knocked over by matters such as minor criminal offences, divorce. They simply don't know how to handle a lot of it. It's an extremely isolated way of existence. It's almost the ultimate total society that one of the problems they have is i think objective special forces soldiers would acknowledge that they suffer from being treated as something special or something different the blue-eyed boys no wrong and that's how they're treated they're cosseted they're treated as different differently and therefore you, they might be forgiven for coming up with the idea that actually in the words of general Findlay. The rules of the regular army don't apply to them. Well, there's a couple of points I wanted to just touch on there. Like first, like Nate said, this idea of like the sociopath. I mean, it is interesting because it does routinely come up in these sort of cases and discussions. I can't remember what, maybe it was the Haditha one, Frank, with the uh, the group of American Marines and that young girl and the family. Of, yeah. um, I mean, there was one, was it Green? There was like this, so there was a, an American soldier or Marine who was, you know, a, a according to the testimony of his like fellow soldiers you know was a psychopath you know was someone who was like wanted to kill people kept talking about killing people and so on so and there is always that, always that risk what i wanted to talk about frank i mean obviously you said about professionalism and leadership and this can sort of mitigate against like war crimes and stop them happening but like surely also it seems to me that the way we talk about war crimes is something exceptional or something that you know oh that's an, that's unfortunate that happened surely given like the fog of war and the chaos of war and the fact that in every war you're dehumanizing the enemy and you're training people to kill and we, well, we know war crimes happen in every conflict war crimes happen in all the good wars they happened in world war one they happened in world war two you know there's loads of evidence that british soldiers committed war crimes in world war two uh, obviously nothing nothing happened but you know it's almost like as soon as you agree to go to war there are going to be war crimes no yeah um, and that's why in international law sort of jumping up several ranks now 
But that's why in international law, the most serious offence is the, is the uh, crime of aggression, which yeah. of which Tony Blair was guilty, and uh, several others uh, alongside him, because that unleashes all. Yeah, the, all the everything issues. flows from that one yeah. I mean, macro I mean, level. To get back to these perpetrators, you know, we should indict them and convict them, but uh, they're in that situation, and it, 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 it's sociopaths aside, and there aren't many sociopaths in the, in the in the military. There are some, but there are probably fewer than in many professions. It, it, it's not a society that, that tolerates sociopaths. To be fair, the military. Parking wardens is hey? a problem. Parking wardens. Constraints on parking wardens. Incentives are greater, the constraints are fewer. <laughs> sociopath in the military, you know, you're not probably not going to cross. I mean, there are some officers who, who do, and some people perhaps in more and some more rarefied units. But not 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 generally. And then you've talked about you know, the professionalism of the British Army. You're 98 percent of special forces. You know, don't commit war crimes. Oh no, I wouldn't say 98 percent of special forces. 98 percent of uh, you know, the, the army. Um, yes, but I want to hire It seems that uh, given the Australian example and what we little we know of the British, that possibly a slightly higher number are willing to condone or commit what appear to be war crimes than in regular units. But that may have something to do with a lack of oversight. Uh, it's very difficult to say with, with, with very little evidence on this. But you've talked about you know institutional cultures, toxic yeah. cultures of the special forces, yes. uh, and like the fact that the military is you know the ultimate closed institution, the ultimate sort of bureaucracy with its own bureaucratic culture, yeah. close to outsiders. I mean, you drew my attention to this recent case in Kenya of a Kenyan prostitute who was allegedly raped and murdered by British soldiers stationed over there. You know, you've got, you know, numerous incidents like the shooting of the Jeremy Corbyn poster in Afghanistan by the Parachute Regiment and, you know, countless other incidents of the white nationalist movement being discovered like quite embedded in the um the british army it does seem to be something we'll get on to like the implications of the wider british society but it does seem to be from an outside perspective like something fairly wrong there i'm beginning to think that particularly with respect to to women there might be a bigger problem than i thought before and a lot of us thought so recently a report was put out by air marshal wigston for the wigston report which talks about the treatment of women in the armed forces quite widely and to be fair, and in everyone's defence before I get stuck in for a minute or so into this, it does say that 90% of British service women would recommend their friends to, to join the military. Now, whether they'd recommend their children to do so is a different matter. There are very many cases where, which would lead me to, not if I had a daughter, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily do that. But that's a, that's a personal choice, and a lot of women would. But there's a significant percentage of women who would not. And that's because... There is, I think, a genuinely, in some outfits, a genuinely poisonous view of women. And you mentioned the case there, just by way of illustration, of Agnes Wanjiru, who was a young woman who worked as a uh, as a sex worker in, in a town in Kenya. And she, she wasn't raped as far as we know. She was a, a part-time prostitute, as you say, with a little baby. And uh, it seems that she was stabbed to death uh, one night by a drunken British soldier, or at least one, then thrown into a septic tank. Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. But uh, allegedly or not, a British soldier admitted to this to his friends. One guy, very fellow and professional, reported it up the chain of command, who apparently, I think it's fair to say, apparently did nothing. Uh, it's only, this is in 2012, so it's only nine years later this comes out, and there's a great flap when uh, I think senior command realises that uh, something has gone seriously wrong in that unit. In fairness to everybody, if you put yourself in the position of the senior officers in that regiment, who would probably have found out a long time after this, probably, although their junior officers would not, and certainly senior NCOs would not, would have known about this. There's not a great deal you can do, depending on how long after it is you found out. I'm not sure that efforts are being made to inquire into those aspects at the moment, because the investigation in Kenya is ongoing, and in fairness, the Kenyan police weren't too hot on it either. But what we have here basically is a guy who admitted to doing it, and the matter appears to have been covered up. And yeah, typically yeah. that implicates an awful lot of people in something very, very, very unpleasant. I'm asking myself some quite serious questions as to what that tells us about the army as a whole. I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, we've also got like deep cut barracks. The What's a deep cut barracks? So deep cut, deep cut was a, a series of trainees or army recruits who 
killed themselves in suspicious circumstances in this particular barracks. And wasn't this stuff Frank like you know they've like shot themselves in the chest or things like that? Like, so, or, like two kind of shots to the head like and yeah. suicide. Yeah, things very, like that, yeah. Very suspect suicides is the answer, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. one of the I only heard about it because one of the uh, soldiers was from North Wales, so it was in Welsh News a lot when we were so growing up. But I wanted to just talk about what all this means for wider society and you know the British state and power and, and militarism and so on and so forth. Because uh, the Eddie Gallagher case, we were talking about this off mic earlier, but like obviously the US is probably the most military uh, with Israel, one of the most militarized countries on earth. You know, despite the fact that obviously a minority of people in America certainly armed forces, but like sort of a fetishism for the military. And you know, Eddie Gallagher got convicted of killing these prisoners or, and people in in Iraq. Oh, he, he, did, came, he didn't get convicted then. Oh, no, what he didn't. Was that his medic admitted doing it on immunity, so he admitted oh, right. to killing. On the, but I, he was granted immunity beforehand, so he exploited that to exculpate. Oh right, okay, and then he said, "I did it." Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to get in trouble, mate. Yeah, and then they just like cross my fingers there, mate. But he he became a core celeb for the Trump camp and the sort of the the far right in the US. And, you know, it really drew attention to, I guess, like, well, how how mad I thought American politics was. Uh, All these former representatives, you know, they're all sort of veterans in the US, like the Republican Party would appear like Dan Crenshaw and stuff. And, and it just... I'm not sure Crenshaw was, actually. I'm not sure Crenshaw was over, was on was on, on Gallagher's side. Oh, OK. But it, but, it, but it, it just, the whole the whole thing, almost like the id of a country, was sort of revealed by the Eddie Gallagher case, you know, the, the monstrosity of American empire, the creeping sort of fascism in America, you know, white nationalism, the idea that he should be able to do whatever he wants. And then, obviously, in the UK, we've had... Although it doesn't it doesn't get any publicity, you know, you had the Marine Aid case, uh, Alexander Blackman, so who was convicted, served three years, killing the uh, dying Afghan insurgent, and then got I think reduced to manslaughter, and then he got out after three years. We've had the Soldier F charges dropped uh, Northern Ireland, I think uh, maybe Bloody Sunday. We need to check this, but then you got Dennis Hutchings, another Northern Ireland veteran, charged with shooting a man with learning difficulties in the back during the trouble, who was going to be charged with his murder, uh, and that became a cause celeb for. You know Johnny Mercer in particular, and then obviously I think in the in the wake of the Soldier F stuff in the in the Northern Ireland, this sort of this dredging up of British actions in Northern Ireland, and what does the British state uh, sort of do? It introduces the Overseas Operations Bill, which is signed by Labour MPs as well as the Tory MPs, which seems to, from an outside perspective, give British military a carte blanche to commit war crimes in all future wars. For me, it just the reaction in America was like wild and. That sort of is like the American way. The reaction in the UK is almost like sums up for me like the British psyche. It's kind of like the establishment just closes ranks and passes some understated law and the Labour Party and the Tory party operating together. It just seemed as disgusting as the American sort of reaction but obviously done in a in a particularly British way. So I wonder if you could talk about the um well the overseas operations bill and how you see this war crime debate like what does it mean for like british politics so i can deal first of all with gallagher so worth saying this that uh, gallagher revealed a big rift in the american seal community which is their navy special yeah. forces so you have one side which call themselves or which are called the pirates and the others the professional the ones who call themselves professionals or decent soldiers there were a lot of those in the seals gallagher represented that that so-called pirate approach and there was a huge constituency in the us that supported him including the president at the time but it's yeah. worth saying, not the command in the SEAL, in the SEAL yeah. forces. And a, a lot of officers and senior ranks and senior rates in the American SEAL community found Gallagher to be, and continue to find him, a disgrace and a, a travesty to their profession. And the, the Secretary of the Navy resigned over it, a decent guy called Richard Spencer. And so, so there was a bifurcation there, which reflects, I think, a very strong, we don't do that approach in the professional mm. side of the US military, as there is in the professional side of the British military, which is yeah, yeah. the majority, actually. But back to the Overseas Operations Bill, the disgrace and calumny of that attempt to provide immunity for war crimes against British troops if five years could elapse was a blight on Parliament. You, I don't know if you know this, but that has, due to the campaign put forward by some very, very decent parliamentarians and uh, members of the House of Lords as well and some generals, that element has been taken out of the Act. OK, so there is going to be an overseas operations bill go forward, but it won't include that immunity for war crimes. Now, I suspect was, there was quite a lot of pressure actually within Parliament on both sides of the House once they got win, because of course most of the time they don't scrutinise anything properly. And if it's got veterans written on it, 
something to do with protecting soldiers. And they're told about it, they don't read it, just goes through. But once it was pointed out, the implications of that for Britain's image abroad, for professionalism in the armed forces, for accountability yeah. and all those things we've discussed already, a lot of people went, oh, we don't like this. Yeah. And, uh, so that part was withdrawn. I think very important in that, frankly, was the removal, and whether it was causative or consequent to the uh, change in the bill, was the removal of Mercer as Veterans Minister, placed by um, a guy called Leo Doherty, who himself yeah. is a, also a veteran, somebody I know a little, I've met him and spoke to him at some length on at least one occasion, decent guy, and I suspect he might have been behind this change in the bill. The fact that that was being proposed was a lot to me about all those factors that you, uh, that you, that you mentioned there, exceptionalism of the British armed forces. And as you mentioned in the last podcast, this narrative of betrayal of our veterans, you know, particularly you saw like uh, the Northern Ireland stuff. I mean, obviously, militarism is a key plank of fascism. And I'm not saying the UK is like sliding towards fascism. I mean, although there are some really worrying things that are happening recently, but it does look, seem that... Dan, look, the, the words of a guy called Nick Mercer, who's a, who's, a, who's a lawyer, army lawyer, heroic ex-army lawyer, now vicar, a good friend of mine. He says, if people just do the right thing, then we wouldn't have these controversies. If somebody commits a murder investigate it, prosecute it and convict them if they're found guilty. If they do the right thing in all of these cases, instead of trying to cover up, usually cock up the cover up or cack handedly try and sweep it away or claim that it's a cultural issue instead of a downright crime. Or or in the case of one senior general I spoke to not not too long ago. Oh, well, I saw that the lights were amber blinking red. He's talking now about the SAS crimes we were speaking of. You get that kind of hack-handed approach then you're not doing the right thing yeah, yeah. it's quite simple to do the right thing in every case and that's what we were taught to do but we're in poppy season you know we're in poppy madness season and this is there's no yeah. time, poppy season to reveal well some of the really troubling things frankly about you know yeah. uh, veterans like our boys uh your british exceptionalism um, and you know the the obvious transformation of the poppy from being a symbol of remembrance and regret to being sort of a symbol of you know like just justifying the continuation of war i agree with you i, I don't I, I, to be honest with you i don't wear a poppy um because because uh, you know for, for those reasons i think it's a virtue signaling to some to, for some people it's for not everybody at all perhaps even not the certainly not the majority but i think it, it touches on virtue signaling the way this is expressed now is verging on militarism. It, I think it was a deliberate act on the part of government, for example, to institute the Wooten Bassett parades. Now, a lot of people disagree with me on that. That doesn't matter. That's what I think. Uh, so that they could cover the whole campaign in this blanket in yeah. Afghanistan of our boys and you criticise yeah. our boys. Sorry, not good enough. Right. That's that's not the way we should be doing things. Uh, there was something we forgot to ask uh, and talk about in the last episode, actually. Um, I just thought about it. It was you know, the, the failure of the campaign in Afghanistan and the fact that you know, all the way through Afghanistan, you know, British soldiers, loads of them would come home and say, like, oh, we've got spanked. Uh, you know, it's going really badly. But obviously, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known that, like, listening to the British, the media, including embedded journalists, because, you know, they were the ones who would embed on, as you said, these, like, head-catching, you know, Operation Panther's Claw and, and ev- every rotation had this own operation which was always reported on as if it was around success for me they haven't done their job at all with things like the overseas operation bill i mean obviously some have but like you know these the military industrial complex and like the british military they have military correspondents in the same way they almost have the royal correspondents they're yeah. just embedded in the military do you know what i mean and it's like yeah, and they have to sign something called the green book and what the green book says is it's essentially a clearance mechanism so yeah. anything you, if you go out uh, into some operational theatre, you have to sign the Green Book. The Green Book says anything you produce will be subject to clearance by the MOD. Now, in yeah. the United States, whatever we say about them, American journalists don't accept that. They just accept no restriction at all. Either we're in yeah. bed with you, we have total freedom because of the First Amendment, or we don't. British journalists, I think, have been to a very great degree co-opted and embedded, yeah, as you said yourself there, through this and other mechanisms. And of course, constrained as well by all the our troops nonsense, I think, which contributed to the extension of this war way beyond where it should have become obvious, which is about 10 years ago, that the thing was a busted flush, a failed war, stupid war and should not have been continued. Is there anything that you wanted to cover, Frank, or is Nate, is there anything you wanted to ask, Frank? Um, yeah, just one thing, actually. You mentioned the Alpha book at the start. Yeah. What, what book's that? It's, uh, it's a story of the Eddie Gallagher affair. 
Yeah. All right. Really well researched. Uh, you can find it in any bookshop. It's a really good read, and it covers a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Um, uh, it's it's yeah. not how to become an alpha male, is it? I've been looking. No. Um, <laughs> it's it's. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Says, I've read the game, like you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> Better top that, Frank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, speaking of weird subcultures. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And recantations. Yeah. Doing my Frank sex witch like. <laughs> Frank, is there anyone you'd like to, you know, give a shout out to, or you know, anything you'd like to draw attention to? Because yes. obviously, you... I'd like to give, give a shout out to my dear friends, uh, Alex Donnelly and. Ed Lysett, who are both veterans and are stalwarts of both combat veterans, both injured in their own ways, and uh, are fantastic guys. And uh, they keep me sane. And uh, I, 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 I love them both. There you go. That's really lovely. Are you working on anything at the moment, Frank, like that we can look forward to? Um, I'm not working on anything um, to do with the, the wars so much. Uh, there is a, a friend of mine, and I, I've also, unfortunately, he's dead now, but I, I would like to mention as well a guy called Colonel David Benest, who's a mentor of mine, actually mentioned in the Guardian article, who pointed out and said that everybody, every uh, officer and uh, warrant officer in the British Army, Navy and Air Force are instructed by the Queen to comply with the laws and customs of war. And um, he died last year. He was a very brave guy. He, um, he was a, a commander in the parachute regiment. He instructed his guys just after bloody, well, a, a few years after Bloody Sunday, he said anybody who mentions Bloody Sunday in any other uh, context of the crime that it was will be sent home. Um, and that was only uh, one uh, uh, token of how he was. Very brave man. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, he paid a price and uh, he died quite young in his late 60s last year. But um, a marvellous man, uh, Colonel David Benest, who would have been a much better person for you to talk to about these things than I am. Um, very brave man. Frank, thank you so much for coming on and, and like share, sharing your insights and wisdom. And we'd encourage people to, again, you know, read Frank's work in Guardian, read Losing Small Wars, as well as his other publications, and look into these things, you know, like because I really do think that they do sort of expose the under, often expose the underbelly of the type of society we sort of live in domestically and the way we react to these things like, you know, war crimes. And, and they are sort of permeated with British exceptionalism, with mili- uh, militarism, imperialism and, and so on. So, yeah, thanks so much again, Frank. This is uh, this is our final uh, episode of Afghanistan, um, but hopefully not our last one with you, Frank. So uh, thanks so much, mate. And um, we'll chat to you soon. Great pleasure, guys. All the best. Right. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, so you got to, uh, uh you, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you gotta support the troops, right? Or you have to. Wait, do you, do you have to support the troops? How? Well, what is the expression? Support the troops? Should we support all of the troops? The troops as a concept, but not all of them as individuals. Yeah, okay. Until you meet them, talk with Until them. Until you meet them, yeah, you like, can't just yo, support. But yeah. like, yo, you a dick, but I support the army, but you an asshole, I don't support you.